Hello and welcome to the reading of the Courier, the E edition, for uh, Tuesday, December 12th. I am Peter Welch, and you're listening to IRIS, the Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. So I hope you are all well and uh, probably chasing around trying to get your your Christmas shopping, and maybe you're going to be making plans to travel, and it's kind of a crazy part of the year, isn't it? Uh, the most important thing, though, is to drive carefully and get to your destinations safely. So let's take a look here and see what we got here on the front page. Holiday Spirit, A Light in the Darkness. Hanukkah celebrated in downtown Cedar Falls with menorah lighting. In Cedar Falls, Dave Draper was among the couple of dozen revelers gathering at River Place Plaza downtown for a special celebration on Sunday night. Draper is not Jewish, but like many others at the Hanukkah lighting ceremony, attended in solidarity with his Jewish neighbors as war rages between Israel and Hamas and hostility toward Jews grows in the United States. I came to support the Jewish people with all the anti-Semitism going on, he said. In front of the amphitheater stage was a 10-foot menorah, marking a chilly fourth night of Hanukkah. Mayor Rob Green lit the servant candle, the middle one used to light the other eight candles. As Rabbi Aaron Shamel from the uh, Shabbat of Northeast Iowa in Postville proceeded to light four others signifying the night of Jewish resilience. The festivities began shortly after 6 p.m. and included traditional dancing and music and food like latkes and donuts, that the passing out of holiday educational materials, and other activities. Shabbat of Northeast Iowa has organized several menorah lightings. This year's first was in Cedar Falls. The others were scheduled for 6 p.m. on Monday in La Crosse, Wisconsin, Tuesday in Cedar Rapids, Wednesday in Fairfield, and Thursday in Postville to round out the, um, the eight nights of Hanukkah. I watched dancing and fiddler on the roof, but you don't want me doing my dancing, Draper quipped. Um, Cedar Falls co uh, couple uh, Hannah Aiken and Yoni Becker, uh, who, uh, who is Jewish, were there to celebrate with the communities after missing out last year. When the event happened for the first time in Cedar Falls, outside Overman Park. The year before that, it was held at Lincoln Park in Waterloo. We have a lot of diversity, and sometimes it goes unseen. You don't realize who your neighbors are if you don't get out, said Aiken. Obviously, the food never hurts either, added Becker. The event featured an array of entertainment for all ages, including an exciting juggling show involving fire put on by Mendel Goldstein. It's a continuation of what the late Rabbi uh, Mancham M. Uh, Sherenson started with his awareness campaign in 1973 in the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War in Israel. In the half century since, organizers say that the Festival of Lights has revitalized a widespread uh, observance of Hanukkah. We're here to infuse extra light, kindness, and happiness in, in times of darkness, says Rabbi uh, um, Levin of Posterville, Postville, rather, excuse me. 
we light the candles, show that Jewish pride, and come together to celebrate a tradition thousands of years old. Friends Lauren Denning and Sarah Cohen from Waterloo both have Jewish roots, recalling times involved in the labor of love, known as making latkes. It's always a fun event, even for those not Jewish. And it is a time to learn about the religion, said Denning. Are municipal elections truly nonpartisan? Lack of party labels doesn't guarantee no party politics in Waterloo. Municipal elections in Iowa are ostensibly nonpartisan. By definition, the process of getting candidates on the ballot does not involve a political party. And they don't have a Democrat or a Republican identifier by their name. But that doesn't uh, preclude partisan influence or cues from indicating a candidate political leanings. Prime examples are local parties giving funds to candidates, campaigns, and endorsements by county and state government officials of the candidate of their choice. A local party chair or an arguably biased individual moderating a debate may be the reason for one candidate not showing up. Some candidates will speak at party events, and there's even fundraising software associated with the political right or left. Most experts don't see it as a major problem and don't recommend any change or changes to how things are done. Research shows that nonpartisan elections take some of the partisan wind out of those elections, says Jane Renfro, a political science professor at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls. However, there are ways that part, uh, partisanship leaks into them, which is easier and easier and easier now with technology and the ease of communication. Back in the day, it was harder to figure it out. Now it's super easy to figure it out because you can look up anything. Endorsements, fundraising, lawn signs, and whether a candidate is a registered member of the party are available in the public domain. Whether partisan influence could be stopped is another conversation. And another challenge would be determining whether to, or where I should say, to draw the line when it comes to who or what can donate. Within the confines of the law, as it is, organizations get to express themselves politically with money, said Renfro. That's another ball of wax we need to discuss. If we have a problem with that, we have to go up the chain and reverse a whole Supreme Court decision. It's a much bigger issue. Renfro uh, supports keeping local elections nonpartisan, but points out that one reason some may consider a, uh, a change may be increased turnout because people go to the polls if they have that association. Josh Wilson has served as public liaison to former Governor Terry Branstead as a communications director on Capitol Hill and been involved in several campaigns. More recently, he took part in door knocking with the two local candidates and say that the partisanship was obvious at least 50 percent of the time. He estimated more important than those local issues at doors where was the question, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? Renfro says a decision by Vicki Brown, chairperson of the Black Hawk County Democrats, to co-moderate a debate ahead of the Waterloo City County runoff election was perhaps a lapse of judgment, but not an intentional act of favoritism. 
Still, she noted that theoretically it, it shouldn't have mattered with it being a nonpartisan election. Wilson finds it more troublesome when the perception of bias, bias or political maneuvering leads to candidates not participating because forums and debates are extremely important and healthy for local democracy. Okay. What else do we have here on the front page here in the paper? Actually, we're finished here, so we're going to go to page two. Police investigate robbery in Waterloo. Police are investigating a robbery at a Waterloo home. According to authorities, a 67-year-old man heard a knock at his door at 1647 at Mount Carmel Drive around 10.20 p.m. on Friday. When he went to answer, an assailant armed with a knife forced his way inside. The intruder took $50 and fled. No injuries were reported and no arrests have been made. In other news here, biogas company is fined for waste burial. An Eastern Iowa company that says it, it benefits the environment by turning agricultural byproducts into energy was recently fined for burying barrels of waste from the operation in a giant pit. According to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, in June 22, uh, the DNR investi uh, investigated a uh, complaint that numerous drums of potentially hazardous material had been buried at a site southeast of New Liberty, where Seaver's family farm has a cattle operation and jointly uh, operates AgriNew. Agri AgriNew uses animal manure and byproducts from soybean oil at, and ethanol uh, plants, among others, to create methane. According to a video posted to its Facebook page, the methane, which is often marketed as a renewable biogas, is burned to produce electricity that is sold to a utility and to create heat for the cattle operation. The DNR investigated the property and noted that about 100 metal and plastic drums in a storage area, many of which contained engine coolant. Brian Seavers, manager of AgriNew, told the DNR that he planned to recycle or properly dispose of those containers. At this meeting, Mr. Seavers stated that he was not aware of any drums buried on the property, according to a recent DNR administrative order. At the time, workers were digging a large basin on the site to build another anaerobic digester to produce biogas. That project was part of a separate partnership with Missouri-based Rose Sline Alternative Energy, which was awarded an $80 million federal climate smart grant to, in part, produce renewable natural gas, according to a company press release last year. Jacobs Forgey, a DNR environmental specialist who investigated the uh, bar uh, barrel complaint, saw no evidence of buried waste at the site or in the work area and concluded that the complaint was unfounded. However, several weeks later, Rose Selene did some exploratory digging based on information from an AgriNew employee and found a couple of plastic drums buried about three feet deep in a nearby area, the DNR order said. A subsequent excavation of the site 
founded at least 20 drums, each with a capacity of about 55 gallons that contained foamy, rancid-smelling, and brownish-black fluids, the order, uh, the order said. They were buried in a pit that was about 20 feet wide, 40 feet long, and 14 feet deep. Due to concerns over the pit being unsafe to occupy, no samples were taken of any of the liquids, the order went on to say. Well, it's good that they caught them. All right, what else do we have here? A man arrested after Waterloo shooting. A victim shot four times Sunday outside uh, home. One person has been arrested in connection with a shooting. That sent a man to the hospital early on Sunday morning. Police arrested Marquane uh, Smith, age 29, of 604 Warren Drive, for one count of felon in possession of a firearm. According to court records, Richard Sturvayant was at 218 Glenwood Street around 4.45 a.m. on Sunday when a number of people arrived in a Chevrolet avalanche. A confrontation ensued, and Sturvayant was assaulted and shot multiple times. The suspects then fled the area. Sergeant Greg Airy of the Waterloo Police Department said that the victim suffered four gunshot wounds, two to the chest, one to the back, and another to the rear, while involved in the altercation. Paramedics with Waterloo Fire Rescue took him to the Unity Point Health Allen Hospital for treatment where he went through surgery on Sunday. He remained in the hospital on Monday. Authorities said that Smith is a prohibited from handling firearms because of a 2016 felony conviction. The case remains under investigation. Smith was arrested at his home around 11.45 a.m. on Sunday. Man charged with trying to set apartment on fire in Waterloo. A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly trying to set fire to an apartment over the weekend. Police arrested Anthony O'Donnell age 36, for first-degree arson, third-degree burglary, third-degree criminal mischief. Bond was set at $100,000. According to court records, O'Donnell was in the process of moving out of an apartment at 219 Parkview Boulevard Boulevard on Saturday around uh, 10.40 p.m. Police were called to the apartment building for a disturbance and found O'Donnell in the hallway. Inside the apartment, Officer found a gas stove that had been used to start a pink Nike backpack and pot holders on fire. And the items were placed on a clear liquid in the kitchen, dining room, and living room floor, believed to be a flammable fluid, according to the court uh, records. The fire had apparently burned itself out without spreading, and no injuries were reported. There were people inside an adjacent apartment at the time. Police go on to say. Also in Waterloo, teen sustains minor injuries in a shooting. One person received minor injuries in a Sunday afternoon shooting in Waterloo. Details weren't available, but police said that a bullet grazed an 18-year-old male who didn't require a trip to the hospital. Shooting happened during a confrontation at 325 Sunnyside Avenue, Around 3.45 p.m. when a vehicle pulled up to the address, someone exited the vehicle and another person stepped out of a vehicle already parked at the address. People in the vehicle that just arrived noticed the other person had a gun and climbed back in. 
The gunman then fired as the vehicles pulled away and several shots struck the vehicle. The incident remains under investigation. Mattress catches fire in Waterloo. A mattress caught fire on Saturday night uh, inside a home at 2100 Clearview Street, causing minor smoke damage throughout most of the structure, according to Captain Bill Harder. The fire broke out inside a bedroom at about 10.45 p.m. while one person was home, said uh, uh, Harder. Uh, that person got out safely. No one has been displaced. The fire was reportedly out by the time Waterloo Fire Rescue arrived. Firefighters assisted with ventilation and continued to investigate the cause. Okay, let's see what we have here. This is now in the Cedar Valley section of the paper. Home for a Blue Christmas. Oster Regent hosts arrests. Excuse me, I meant to say artists. Pardon me. Oster Regent hosts artists candlelight Christmas show. Okay, in Cedar Falls, Blue Violin, an award-winning classical crossover artist, is bringing his intimate Christmas by Candlelight concert to the Oster Regent Theater for a December 15th performance. Blue Violin is better known to families and friends as Christopher Vuk. This is a homecoming of sorts for the solo violinist who favors blue violins. He grew up in Cedar Falls and Denver. It was a senior in high. He was I was a senior in high school when I first played at the Oster Region for our school benefit. It's nostalgic coming home to do a Christmas concert. It feels good to be back," said Vuk, who graduated from Denver High School. His parents still live in Denver. The concert will feature acoustic arrangements of such holiday favorites as "I Wonder as I Wonder." Along with electric world fusion reimaginings of classic Christmas songs, such as Carol of the Bells, Silent Night, and God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, as well as original music from Blues Violin upcoming new album. Tickets are $30 per person or $75 for a family pack that includes up to three adults and four kids available. And here, let me give you the address it's https colon forward slash, forward slash, blue, dash, violin, dot com. The show is at 7 p.m. The Oster Regent is located at 103 Main Street. All right, let's see what else we've got here now. We are now on, where uh, we're continuing the Cedar Valley section of the paper. Okay, Christmas greetings on Main Street for Thursday in Waverly. Christmas greetings on Main Street is set for 6 to 8 p.m. Thursday in downtown. The opening ceremony starts at 6 p.m. with a church bell kickoff at Santa's House in, uh, in Coleman Park at 101 First Street Northwest. Santa will be available to hear wish lists and for photographs. Ron Dillavu of Chain Reaction Carvings will be demonstrating ice sculpture carvings. Great performances and caroling are also part of the fun. Along Bremer Avenue, the storefront windows will come to life in a Candyland Christmas theme. There will be designated hot spots with free hot cocoa, courtesy of Nestle's, and a live navity scene will be set up by the Waverly Life Church right uh, off of the 2nd Street Southeast. 
And the Waverly Chamber of Commerce organizes this event. And you, if you have any questions about it regarding this, you can direct them to Waverly at Waverly Chamber, all one word, dot com. A Patchwork of the Past, Cedar Falls author's new book inspired by Rustic Rose Quilt. In Cedar Falls, Cherie Derrigan pulled another keepsake quilt from the antique chest her grandfather made, the inspiration for her recently released book, The Legacy. It's the second book in her grandmother's treasures uh, series published by Word Crafts Press. The story involves the American Civil War and Dargan's uh, beautifully preserved vintage red and green quilt in rustic rose pattern that, it, uh, that itself dates from the 1860s. Uh, Dargan will be signing books at noon on December 16th at TJ's at Christian Bookstore at 1806 Waterloo Road in Cedar Falls. I always knew I was going to write about the most cherished, oldest quilt in my collection. It's a lovely family quilt, and someone has described it as an applique, uh, an applique quilt, said Darrigan, age 70, a retired professor of communications at Hawkeye Community College in Waterloo. She previously wrote a technology column for The Courier. All right, we are now at the opinion uh, part of the um, re reading of the paper today. Um, let's see what we've got here with the political cartoon. There's a picture of Vladimir Putin. Uh, there's a picture of, a, of uh, an elephant dressed in a Santa Claus outfit. And the elephant has a blue stocking. It says, aid to Ukraine. And then in his other hand, he has coal. And Putin says, it's just what I wanted. Let's take a look at um, the columns here, uh, the political columns. Um, let's take a look at this first one. It's Biden can't defeat Trump without securing the border. And um, this is written by Lynn Schmidt. Okay, let's take a look at her column. President Joe Biden needs to secure the nation's southern border, if not for its national security implications and for Biden's own political benefit and the welfare of our republic. Biden has admitted he is running for a re-election because he thinks his predecessor is a threat to our democracy and believes he's the only Democrat who can stop Donald Trump. Biden said as much when he told donors at a recent campaign fundraiser in the Boston area, if Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running, but we cannot let him win. Trump has been saying the quiet part out loud during his reelection and retribution campaign. In a recent town hall in Iowa, Fox News' Sean Hannity asked Trump to confirm that under no circumstances you are promising America tonight you would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Trump replied, except for day one, I want to close the border. I want to drill, drill, drill. Trump has also said he would come after his political foes, the deep state and the media, taking Biden at his word and agreeing with him that Trump should not be allowed back in the Oval Office. Biden needs to get serious about the border, secure it, and then tell the American people that he did. Last October, 
The Associated Press ran a story headlined, The Biden Administration Says It Is Using Executive Power to Allow Border Wall Construction in Texas. I immediately thought to myself, if this is true, this is an act of political genius. Imagine a political world if Biden was the president to finish building the wall, the wall that Trump promised to build and have Mexico pay for. Over the past year, the Biden administration has rolled out new border management and enforcement policies as a way to drive down the number of illegal crossings on the southern border. Included in these efforts was a decision to discontinue uh, excuse me, I should say to continue, pardon me, to continue construction of the above-mentioned border wall in Starr County, Texas. Understanding that usefulness of physical barriers, Geraldo uh, Mayorkas, the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, stated in a, uh, in a notice that there is presently an acute and immediate need to construct physical barriers and roads in the vicinity of the border of the U.S. in order to prevent unlawful entries into the United States in the project areas. Biden has also created new paths for legal immigration. Despite these efforts, a record number of illegal crossings have occurred this year at our southern border. In fiscal 2023, it was 2.5 million people, according to NBC News, up from 2.4 million and 1.7 million in the two previous years. It's also worth mentioning the illegal flow of synthetic uh, fentanyl and its components, which continue to poison our communities, which is also coming through our borders with Mexico. All of this creates the sense that the southern border is out of control, which feeds into the narrative of chaos under the Biden administration. Adding fuel to the fire is the more than 2 million cases pending in U.S. immigration courts, with some non-citizens waiting years to have their asylum cases heard. Correct or not, the American electorate broadly disapproves of Biden's job as president. Many believe he is weak on border security. Polls broadly show that over or just about 40% of the electorate approves of Biden and more than 50% disapprove. According to a Fox News poll released in October, of, uh, in October, 71% of the registered voters surveyed said that the current levels of security at the U.S. border are not strict enough, with a majority of Democrats and Biden voters saying that more, uh, that more needed to be done to secure the border with Mexico. 82% of independents uh, also voiced their disapproval with current border policies. So let us connect some political dots here. Biden seems to understand the imperative of defeating Trump again. The, count, uh, the country's right uh, rightly demands that our southern border be secured. Following this logic, Biden needs to take every step he can in securing the southern border immediately. He should also work with Congress to reform the current immigration system. And then he needs to go out and shout from the rooftops exactly what he has done, all of which is the right thing to do. If Biden does not act to secure the southern border and quickly, he is ha he's handling Trump the 2024 election. It is complicated and as simple as that. Well, things are certainly heating up in uh, the election campaign, that's for sure. I think it's going to be a very interesting campaign for all concerned um, next year. Okay, let me remind you that you are listening to... Um, Iris, which is the Iowa Radio 
Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. My name is Peter Welch, and I am narrating uh, the e-edition of The Courier here for today, for Tuesday the 12th. Um, normally about now, what we do is we uh, turn to the um, obituary news, and um, then we'll continue uh, reading the, uh, the news uh, as we're now halfway through our broadcast. So let's do this. Let's go do that and read what we've got here, and then we will come back. All right. Our first one is Penny Everett. Penny Everett, age 54, of Independence, Iowa, died at her home on Saturday, December 9th. Visitation will be at 4 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, December 12, 2023, at White Funeral Home Independence. Funeral services will be at 11 a.m. Wednesday, December 13th, at White Funeral Home Independence, Iowa, with a one-hour visitation prior to services and burial will follow uh, at Mount Home Cemetery in Independence. Sue DeBauer, age 88, uh, passed uh, at Mercy One uh, in Waterloo uh, on, uh, on the 9th of December. And let's see, I'm checking for funeral arrangements. Funeral service uh, will be at 11 a.m. on Wednesday, December 13th at the First United Methodist Church in Cedar Falls with interment in the Elmwood Cemetery. Uh, Dyke, Dyke. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 uh, p.m. on Tuesday, December 12th, at Richardson Funeral Home Services in Cedar Falls. Marvin uh, DeBerens has passed at the age of 95. And let's see. Um, he, he passed at the Lutheran Retirement Community in Waverly. Funeral service will be at 11 a.m. on Wednesday, December 13th, uh, at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Waverly with Pastor Corey Smith and Mike Blair officiating. Following the uh, lunch, the church burial with military rites will be provided by Waverly Veteran Honor Guard uh, at, um, at Long Grove Cemetery in Maynard. John Payne, uh, age 73, has passed at the Grundy County uh, Memorial Hospital uh, on Friday, the 8th of December. Per Mike's wishes, his family held a private gathering in his honor. And he'll be buried at Rhinebeck Cemetery at a later date. And flowers, memorials may be directed to the hospice of donor's choice at the Cedar Bend Humane Society. Uh, Jerline, better known as Jerry uh, Ketterer, has passed at the age of 94 uh, at the LaPorte City Specialty Care Facility. And let's see, a funeral service will be held 11 a.m. on December 15th um, at Lock Garden View Chapel at 3655 Logan Avenue, Waterloo. A public visitation will take place one hour prior. And let's see, what else do we have here? We've got, finally, James Sweeney. James Sweeney passed at the age of 81 uh, at Harmony, uh, Waterloo. And let's see, Mass of Christian Burial will be at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, the 12th of December at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Gilbertville with burial at Mount Olivet Cemetery. Public visitation from 4 to 7 uh, p.m. on Monday, December 11th at Haggerty Wachoff Garrup Funeral Service on South Street. And visitation also one hour prior to the, uh, to the Mass 
at the church. All right. Uh, we are now going to um, go back um, to our uh, political news here. Uh, this is the opinion uh, page of the paper, and this is another view. And this one is from the Chicago, Chicago uh, Tribune. And it's tied, and this is, oh, by the way, I should tell you, one of our uh, running candidates, Chris Christie, uh, wrote this particular uh, piece. So let's, um, let's read that right now here. Haley should stop cowering. At this point, they have nothing to lose by telling Trump or telling the truth about former President Trump. The four Republican presidential debate thankfully featured just four candidates rather than the cattle call we saw in previous sessions. But whether there are four or 14 running, the same problem persists. There's only one former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie willing to tell primary voters what too many of them apparently don't want to hear. Donald Trump is unfit to be president and presents an unacceptable threat to our democracy. The key moment in the debate was when Christie answered that question directly and then challenged the other three to say whether or not they considered Trump fit to return to the White House. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis danced around the issue, saying that he thought a younger person than Trump ought to be the one. That, of course, wasn't the question. Nikki Haley, the former U.S. and ambassador and South Carolina governor, who increasingly is viewed as the best chance within the GOP defeating Trump, stood stone silent. This is the problem with my three colleagues, Christie then intoned. They're afraid to offend. And therein lies the problem. In the words of founding father Thomas Paine, he who dares not offend cannot be honest. These candidates can and obviously do talk about President Joe Biden's age and policies and immigration, the disgraceful cowardice of university presidents in confronting anti-Semitism on campus, and the other issues uh, animating the race. But there really is just one pressing concern for the GOP. Will the party excise the foul stain of Trump now under indictment and charged with multiple crimes, including inciting an insurrection against the United States. The strategy behind not offending is understandable. Trump, with a daunting lead in the polls, is viewed favorably by a substantial segment of the GOP base. Criticizing him forcefully risks turning off those voters. Christie, of course, has nothing to lose. His reason for still being in the race is to compel GOP voters to confront the elephant in the room. He clearly isn't expecting to be nominated. In holding feet to the flame, he's providing a valuable service to his party and to the country. But so long as Haley and DeSantis, the two candidates, perceived as having any realistic chance at beating Trump to the nomination shrink from the overarching issue, there's a little point. There's little point to their candidacies. What makes Trump problematic? Why would they give the party a better chance at victory in November? Continuing to cower in this way surely will mean eventual defeat anyway. 
At this point, there's nothing to lose. Tell GOP primary voters the truth. Well, that's an interesting article. And by the way, I misspoke when I said that Chris Christie had written this article. He had not. It was written by the staff of the Chicago Tribune. So I apologize for that uh, mistake there. All right, let's see. What else do we have here in the opinion section of the paper? No, Virginia, your Christmas tree isn't a climate crime. This is written by Mark Gongelhoff, who is an editor and uh, I should say is a Bloomberg editor and columnist who previously worked for Fortune.com, the Huffington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. Let's see what he has to say here. One climate change solution everybody seems to agree on is that trees are good. Even former President Donald Trump, who has called climate change a Chinese hoax, has proposed planting a trillion trees. So it might seem that the holiday tradition of chopping down one of these precious planet savers and dragging it into your living room to festoon with lights and ornaments, only to toss it on the curb a few weeks later, would be bad for the climate but you may be doing the planet a favor. For one thing, Christmas tree farming is generally a sustainable business. Trees grow for many years before harvesting and are replaced by one or more seedlings when they're finally cut down. Just 30 million of the 350 million or so trees on farms actually get chopped down every season. According to the Nature Conservancy, an environmental advocacy nonprofit. While they grow, the trees absorb carbon from the atmosphere, doing their part to eat the emissions humans wantonly pump into the air by burning fossil fuels and raising cows. Of course, cutting trees down, digging up the soil to plant new ones, and hauling the harvest to your local Elks Club or Walmart parking lot for sale to the public does generate carbon emissions. But this pollution is nothing compared with what's involved in producing artificial trees. There are typically these are typically hard to recycle, and they are also typically shipped all the way from China to that Walmart. According to one estimate, a six-foot-tall artificial tree on the short side for a McMansion produces the equivalent of 88 pounds of carbon dioxide compared with less than eight pounds for a real tree of the same size. To maximize the environmental benefits of the real tree, you will need to make sure it's both sourced and recycled responsibly. Cutting trees out of old growth forests and then just leaving them on the ground to, not, uh, to rot raises the carbon impact. You could save yourself all of this agonizing by bearing a live tree that you can replant once you've done making it look ridiculous. Of course, then you're giving yourself a chore. But remember, if you still insist on getting an artificial tree, you'll have to use it for 12 Christmases to make up the difference in emissions. The risk is that you'd get sick of looking at it long before then. The average household uses such a tree for 10 years before chucking it. Some people don't have any other choice. Maybe they have allergies or odor sensitivities that make real trees. Live or dead, unbearable. This brings us to the deep 
dark secret of this column. It doesn't really matter what you do. You can just stare at the corner where a tree should be, or you could buy 100 artificial trees and set them all on fire on New Year's Day. Whatever CO2 equivalent you produce is not even fit to be a rounding error compared with the carbon emissions of, oh, let's say, Walmart, which emitted 14 million tons of CO2 last year. As I've noted before, the idea of a personal carbon footprint was invented by BP Pick, the oil behemoth formerly known as British, British uh, Petroleum. It's a clever marketing ploy that makes you, dear reader, feel guilty about your own emissions, which in turn makes you less likely to complain about those of, say, BP, 340 million tons of carbon last year. The Kanye drum is that many individual consumer choices together can shift demand so much that it starts to make a real difference. And the richer you are, the bigger your carbon impact and the greater your influence. The important thing to know is that you can buy an artificial tree and eat cheeseburgers and drive a gas-burning car if you need to and still help fight global warming. Make whatever lifestyle changes you can afford. Sure, but the impact of uh, talking to your friends, loved ones, and enemies about climate, advocating for action, and voting for po politicians who want to make a difference will last longer than any Christmas decoration. Boy, that is good. Bravo for you there, Mr. Gondelhoff. Terrific. Okay. What else do we have here in the paper? I am turning the page here. Bear with me here. Trump's lead in Iowa grows as caucus nears. Former President Donald Trump has support from more than half of the voters likely to attend the Iowa caucuses next month, far more than any rival for the Republican presidential nomination. A new poll uh, from the key state has showed Trump's lead at 51% was fueled by his support with most evangelical voters and those who said that the January 15th contest would be their first time attending a caucus, according to the survey from NBC News, the Des Moines Register, and Mediacom. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had 19%, and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, whose national profile has spiked recently, was at 16%. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramswamy had support from only 5% of the voters, and former New Jersey Governor Christie, Chris Christie had just 4%. Trump's sizable lead is up from the same poll in October that showed about 27 points over DeSantis and Haley despite media attention attention, excuse me, from recent debates and an infusion of do, uh, donor cash for Haley. J.N. Seltzer, the Iowa pollster, who has been conducting this survey over the last three decades, said that the field may have shrunk, but it may have, uh, but it may have made Donald Trump even stronger. I would call his lead commanding at this point. The poll questioned 502 people likely to attend a caucus between the 2nd of December uh, through the 7th, and it has an overall margin of error of plus or minus 4.4 percentage 
points. Fatal injuries described at Rhinebeck homicide trial. Kevin Lee uh, Halliday faces murder charge and girlfriend's death in Grundy Center. Head injuries Christian Chrissy Jays suffered were the kind of wounds usually seen in car crashes. A, a forensic pathologist testified on Friday. Jays, age 41, of Rhinebeck died of complications of blunt force trauma to the head. According to an assistant state of medical examiner, Dennis Furchow, but instead of a traffic accident, Jay's fatal injury were the result of a homicide, uh, Furchow told jurors at trial and continued for Jay's former boyfriend, Kevin Lee Halliday. Halliday, age 42, is charged with first-degree murder. Authorities allege that Halliday's hurt Jay's at her home on the morning of December 16th of 2021, shortly after he returned from the hospital after an earlier incident in which her teenage son stabbed Halliday. Jay's was found unconscious in her dining room and died about a week later following multiple surgeries. Farachow said that he noticed bruising on the left side of Jay's head around her ear and that she had two black eyes, the left eye being worse with bruising spreading to her cheek. He said that he found two points of impact on her head. An internal examination uncovered a, a, a subdural hemorrhage bleeding on the brain, as well as a subarachnoid hemorrhage, a, a deeper bleeding, and an intraparanchymal hemorrhage, even deeper yet. The blunt force injuries of the head that produce subdural hemorrhages and and subarachnoid hemorrhages typically required some significant type of trauma. We are typically talking unbraced falls on concrete, falls down stairs, motor vehicle crashes, falls from the heights, and other significant trauma. It would be likely be caused by bumping the head on a table or a cupboard or a wall, he said. Halliday told investigators he'd been talking with Jay's and that she told him she was tired and got down on the floor to take a nap. Furchow said that the in the week that uh, fellow uh, G's injury doctored had removed a portion of her skull to relieve the pressure on her brain in an attempt to save her life. He determined that the internal hemorrhaging predated the surgery. While investigators weren't able to tell what exactly happened in the house before Jay's collapse. They were able to determine she and Hall Halliday were in the house alone. Okay, uh, this next article um, is an update about a missing Iowa trucker that you might have heard about. I read about um, uh, trucker David Schultz of Wall Lake has been missing since the 21st of November. Um, they just don't, the authorities have absolutely no idea where he is. And uh, this article is an update from that. In Sac City, the Sac County Sheriff's Office gave its first update in more than a week on Wall, on Wall Lake resident David Schultz, who was reporting missing on the 21st of November. Saturday morning, Sac County Sheriff Ken McClure said in a release that the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation assisted with a forensic search of David Schultz's phone and confirmed that he has not legally gone through a U.S. boarding crossing and is still missing. McClure said that the last time Schultz was seen was on an Iowa Department of Transportation camera 
on Highway 20 west of MM-126 truck stop heading west. According to McClure, Schultz, a 53-year-old married truck driver and father of two, had his vehicle called in by a Sac County Secondary Road employee at 3.04 p.m. on the 21st of November after it was discovered parked on the traveled portion of the road at the intersection of D-15, 109th Street, and N-14th Union Avenue. It was reported that the semi had been sitting there since early morning. Responding deputies determined that it was David Schultz's. The semi was shut off, and inside deputy found David Schultz's wallet and cell phone, McClure said. David Schultz's driving license, driver's license was in the wallet. Investigators would later learn that nothing was missing from the wallet. Following the discovery, McClure said that county investigators searched the area on foot and with canine and required assistance from the Iowa State Patrol Air Wing Unit. A state uh, patrol pilot flew the surrounding area and did not detect a heat signature that would be consistent with a person, McClure said. For the next two days, law enforcement area firefighters and volunteers expanded the ground search on foot and with the use of drones. Nothing of significant value was reported or located. To further the search, McClure said Sac County Sheriff's uh, detectives and Lakeview Police traveled to the Eagle Grove area in Wright County and, with the help from the Wright County Sheriff's Office, found the hog confinement Schultz was supposed to load uh, up from. Load crew members were interviewed and, lo- and load records were obtained, McClure said. Investigators learned that Schultz had picked up his load but had been late to arrive and his was the last truck loaded. Schultz left at about 10.50 p.m. At some point in Schultz's journey, McClure said that cell phone data shows that Schultz traveling to the intersection of Highway 20 and Highway 71 Junction. There was, um, there was not any uh, usable video from the DOT camera at Highway 4 and Highway 20, and there's no video of Schultz stopping at the truck stop at Highway 4, McClure said. Cell phone data shows Schultz's phone ar- uh, arrives at Highway 20 and 71 at about 12.18 a.m. The data shows that the phone traveling north to where the truck was found Data suggests that the truck may have been there since 12.40 a.m. on November the 21st of this year. Investigators obtained surveillance video, according to McClure, from an area business near Weichmann Hog Buying Station. McClure said that uh, this video showed that David Schultz never made it to, uh, to Weichmann's. Law enforcement has searched for additional video footage from Eagle Grove to Fort Dodge, but has not located any. Since Schultz's disappearance, the United Cajun Navy, a Louisiana-based nonprofit, and volunteers scored more than 100,000 acres in and around Sac County. In addition to Sac County, Lakeview, Iowa, DCI, and Wright County law enforcement officials, the Iowa State Patrol, and Minneapolis police helped look for Schultz. Schultz's wife, Sarah, repeatedly called the disappearance suspicious. This is not something David would do, she said. He would never leave. His family is his 
life. Sarah Schultz uh, last saw her husband about 7.30 p.m. on the 20th of November. She said David had been working all day and asked her to grab him a change of clothes. He had to do another seaboard load from Eagle Grove to Sac City, she said. He just washed up, changed, gave me a kiss, ran out the door. He's always in a hurry. Sarah Schultz said that David was eager to get um, his work done and come back home since her daughter and grandson were visiting from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. However, the next morning, Schultz found that the man for whom David hauls livestock on her doorstep, he said, have you spoken to Dave? Schultz recalled, I said, no. He said, no one can get a hold of him and the pigs haven't been dropped off yet. McClure said that anyone with any information is asked to contact the Sac County Sheriff's Office. Here's the phone number. Area code 712-662-7127 or their local law enforcement agency. Let me give you that number one more time. Area code 712-662-7127. Okay. That does it for the reading here of The Courier, the E-Edition, for Tuesday, the 12th of December. And I am your reader, Peter Welch, and you've been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed. 
until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed, food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org. Are you among the millions of Americans living with chronic pain? If so, you may think prescription opioids are the solution. The truth is, the benefits of opioids are limited. Opioids only mask the pain. Opioids also come with serious side effects, ranging from nausea to withdrawal symptoms to overdose. As many as 25% of people who are prescribed opioids struggle with addiction. And those who are addicted to opioids are 40 times more likely to move on to heroin. No one wants to live in pain, but no one should put their health at risk to be pain-free. There is another choice, physical therapy. Physical therapists treat pain through movement and exercise, no warning labels required, and you get to be an active participant in your care. Choose to treat your pain safely. Choose physical therapy. Visit moveforwardpt.com to find a physical therapist near you. This public service announcement is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association.